The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for January 3rd, 2019. Happy New Year. It's the Exploratory Committee Edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in Washington, D.C. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. Happy New Year, Emily. You are in uh, Brooklyn, I think. Not your usual. I am in Brooklyn, and happy 2019 to you. And we have a special guest, David Leonhardt, op-ed columnist and host of The Argument from the New York Times, joins us in Washington. Hello, David. Hello, David and Emily. It is always fun to be on your show. Um, Well, now we have you on as a fellow podcaster. to. We're glad to induct you into that fraternity, secret handshakes and all. Have you been taught that? Uh, I have not, but I haven't. No, Michael Barbaro has not shown you all of that stuff? You guys will have to teach me today. Wow. Wait till you hear about the hazing rituals. But I do have the beard that you and Michael Barbaro both have, so apparently that's part of being a podcaster. It is. It's it's (laughs) also part of the podcast. You can't hear a beard. Face for radio. So, um, John, I don't know where John Dickerson is, but I'm sure he's, I hope he's uh, recuperating, resting and recuperating from a hard New Year's Eve. On this week's show, we will talk about the shutdown. How long is it going to last? How will it resolve? Why did it happen? Then Elizabeth Warren kicked off the 2020 presidential campaign. She launched her exploratory committee. We will rate her chances and talk about uh, who she's likely to face in the Democratic primary. And we will talk about David's year-ending column about climate change, mostly depressing, partly cheering, mostly depressing. And we'll have cocktail chatter as well. The partial government shutdown has crossed or is about to cross, is in the process of crossing the two-week barrier, and it's heading towards forever. We are frozen over the president's demand for more than $5 billion for his southern border wall, money that Republicans, when they controlled Congress, which was up till yesterday, were unable to pass through the legislature, and the Democrats, now that they control the House of Representatives, starting this afternoon, we're taping Thursday morning, certainly won't be interested in spending as well. So for a story where, where basically nothing is moving, there is a lot of there are a lot of pieces of it. There are 800,000 federal workers who are not getting paid. 350,000 of them are not getting paid and working. Some of them are now suing. So Emily, maybe we'll talk about the legal aspects of that suit. Uh, or maybe we won't. There's too much to talk about. There is a new Democratic House majority, which is expected to pass uh, clean bills to restart the government as the first order of business, I think, today or soon. There's a Republican Senate. they have Senate to pass that Mitch rules Ma- bill first? Okay, but they'll get to it quick. That doesn't count. They'll do it quick. Okay. I don't know. I'm not. I didn't. Maybe second, third, fourth order of business, seventeenth order of business, some quick order of business. There's a Republican Senate where Mitch McConnell does not want to do anything to embarrass Republicans or embarrass the president, so he is unlikely to want to bring to the floor any bill the president might not sign. There is Mike Pence, Vice President's Mike Pence's own own plan for $2.5 billion in border security, which the president has now seemed to have rejected, even though it came from his own vice president. There are other apparent stillborn plans to couple the border wall with with uh, DACA protection restoration. Um, there was a meeting between the president and new congressional leaders that ended inconclusively Wednesday with no progress toward a deal, but with the president still lying about everything. <laughs> so so, David, game this out a little bit. Um, what what possible resolution is there to this? I mean, or could the government just be shut down forever, which I'm sure Donald Trump wouldn't really care about? 
I mean, one of the most annoying things about government shutdowns is we all sort of know the resolution, right? Which is the government will reopen at some point. I think what what injects some in- uncertainty into this shutdown, unlike the others, is that we have a president who's just less rational and reality-based than any president we've ever had, certainly in our lifetimes. And so you can imagine that Donald Trump will invent some excuse for why he really won the shutdown that is completely untethered to reality. He could invent that reason right now or tomorrow, or it could take him months to do so. And I think so that's what's uncertain about um, how this ends. I do think it's a perilous moment for Trump, right? When you combine the fact that Democrats are taking power, you you see more signs of Republicans breaking with him a little bit, Mattis resignation, Romney's op-ed in the Post blasting him. And so I think if it contributes to this general notion that his presidency is coming undone a little bit, and if it does hurt his polling, you can imagine more Republicans breaking with him. So I do think he's taking a risk here. I think the risk for the Democrats, um, and I, I don't know whether the two of you agree with this, but I think the risk for the Democrats is I still think immigration is a bad subject for the Democrats and an unusually good subject for Trump. And that's what this shutdown is over. So that's kind of how I see this all gaming out. Do, Emily, to go to David's point here. Is this a, is this a, first of all, is this a Trump shutdown? And is this a shutdown that the American people really do perceive to be about border security and, and the threat of wave of immigrants who shouldn't be here. Well, the polls are against Trump, both on the issue of building the wall and on blaming him for the shutdown. And given that he said, I'm proudly going to own this shutdown on television a couple of weeks ago, um, it's hard to walk back from that um, once you've put it out there, although he is certainly trying hard on Twitter. So I think that the specifics are against him, but he seems so impervious to feedback that doesn't come directly from his base that I don't know how much he really cares. It just doesn't seem to be driving him, those, you know, 10 to 20 percent of people who are malleable, who are gettable, who would bring his favorability ratings up. He just seems to have... um, done so many things to walk in the other direction. It doesn't make that much sense politically, but it. I then go to David Leonhardt's uh, excellent observation, which is this isn't a totally rational situation here, right? It's not, although I still do think, I mean, there are shards of rationality in Trump. And I do think his instinct that immigration is a good issue for him is right. Um, I mean, I know that if you look at the in the moment polls about do people want a wall that they are against Trump. But the fact is, his approval rating hasn't yet slipped at all during this. And I think if you kind of look at the overall polling, a lot of the swing voters, the kind of white working class voters, when they are reminded of immigration, 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 it is much better for Trump than when they are reminded of almost anything else, taxes, health care, um, you name it. And so I'm not saying this is a smart shutdown for Trump. I just think the one kind of silver lining for him is this cynical and yes, racist strategy that that he has employed. And that's the reason he got elected president. And the other reason why it's not so bad, I think, Emily, and maybe you disagree with this, is that it this shutdown does, has felt oddly disconnected. Now, admittedly, partly it's that that the museums and national parks were able to stay open through New Year's Day. And now no one's going to museums and national parks that much because it's back to work time. But there has not been that much chaos. Social security checks are going out. The military is still doing their job. There are pieces of things that aren't happening. No one can get married in Washington, D.C., for example, because the courts the courts in Washington, D.C. are not, not functioning very well. There are immigration courts that aren't functioning very well, ironically. But, but it doesn't feel like a 
total breakdown in the work of government in the way that some of the, the Gingrich shutdowns did back in the mid-90s. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. It feels kind of blunted and muted. And so in that sense, it's not causing an immediate crisis. And that, I think, puts less pressure on Trump. And then, you know, another kind of long-term trend to pull out here that we talk about a lot on the show is that when government seems dysfunctional, that can hurt the Democrats, even if they're not being directly blamed for it. And this right. sort of sense of like right. malaise and just, you know, deterioration is one that Democrats have more at stake in. But, you know, in terms of, I mean, it is true that Trump's favorability ratings haven't gone down, but they're still like at 40 percent. I mean, this is not a popular president bad. who... Which is bad, <laughs> exactly. Um, but I just don't see a lot of payoff for him here, especially because it doesn't really seem like his party, like the actual Republican politicians in Washington, have a lot of appetite for this. And 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 because the goalposts keep moving, like how can they when they don't know what a wall is precisely? John Kelly but, says, "Well, to be honest, this hasn't been about a wall for you know months and months." And so then there's all this like steel slats. I mean, it is a little bit of a farce that part of it. But isn't the isn't the whole point about the wall, David, is that he doesn't want the wall to get built? Right. Isn't it that, that he wants to constantly be not able to build the wall? That's I, the goal. I do think that's right. I mean, I think I, I think the one way in which he'd like to build the wall is if you actually imagine a wall starting to go up, it would allow him to claim victory. And there is nothing more important to him. But you're right. I think what he – to have this out there, right? It's a kind of mini version of what abortion has been for the Republican Party so long for so long, right? right. This issue that they say it's their most important thing, but they never quite get there. And it's like the carrot that's that the a, rabbit keeps right, chasing, right? right. Look, I, I – I mentioned the fact that I don't think immigration is a great subject for Democrats, but I agree with Emily that I think the risks here are more on Trump. Let's imagine for a minute that his approval rating does start to drift down, right? Let's imagine the shutdown goes goes on and on for a couple weeks and it and it goes badly for him. I think then he would be in a moment of some real peril, right? It, where it you would you would really start to see um, this evidence of a presidency that is unraveling. Um, and so this to me is not a smart risk for him to take, but I, I don't think he's necessarily toting up the costs and benefits. I, I think it's on gut. I, I agree with you both that there's huge risks for Trump here. But it, I, there is something odd in the idea that it is the president who is responsible for a government shutdown. It's not the president's job. Like the job is of Congress. Congress can pass these bills and they can override any veto that he would make. It's a Congress that, is, that chooses not to act. It's a, it will be a Republican Senate that will, will choose not to pass these bills. So there's, there's something – of course it is – you know, that, that McConnell will act this way because he, he fears what you know, Trump might do and he, detri- he doesn't want to embarrass Trump. He doesn't want to, to divide Republicans. But it is – we always talk about the, oh, it's, it's, it's bad for Trump. Like the overwhelming story of the past 50 years in American politics is the – is the total abdication of the legislative branch from doing its job and from passing the laws that it should be passing. They, they are able to end the shutdown today. That's their job. They choose not to do it because they're not working majorities and because of the way the bicameral legislature works and because of partisanship. But it is actually their job. Yes, but the the thing in this case is there's no they there, right? Which yeah. is the House is going to pass some bills that would reopen the government and the Senate's then going to refuse to do it. But I agree. Look, we, we would have a healthier democracy if Congress did more and we put fewer things on the president of the United States and the nine unelected members of the Supreme Court. 
Yes, and yet Trump takes up so much oxygen, right, that we can't even really like he in this funny way it, he he plays against himself because he wants attention so badly that he brings it back onto the presidency even in a moment when it would be smart to just kind of punt to Congress. Yep. How do you guys think uh if you were if you were Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer or even Mitch McConnell that you deal with the problem of an untrustworthy negotiating partner. I mean, this is a problem, of course, for the shutdown, but it's going to be a problem going forward. How is it that that uh, the people who need to negotiate with him can work with him to actually get anything done, or is it a hopeless task? I mean, if I were McConnell, I would basically be trying to trick him, right? Because I don't think <laughs> I don't think a shutdown is in McConnell's interest, right? What, what does McConnell care about? He cares about confirming judges. He cares about keeping his Senate majority. I don't see how a shutdown helps either of those. So I'd basically be looking for a way for Trump to claim some kind of victory. Uh, if I were Pelosi and Schumer, um, I would be really torn because there's a there's a part of me that wouldn't actually be looking that hard for a solution because I would think that the risks are more to Trump and I would pass my bills and I would basically say to Trump, hey, we've passed these bills. You want a solution? Uh, let's play ball. As they told him in the Oval Office before the New Year's, it's not like he has a lot of Republican votes for the wall either. So he, he's in a tough spot. I mean, somehow they're going to, like, muddle their way out of this eventually. But I don't see – the short-term solution is for Trump to just, like, change the rules of the game, declare a victory, move on. And the longer term is for him to get backed into some corner. But that – then it becomes harder to see how he capitulates. Um, I think that just – at some point he's just going to have to, like, figure out a way to – declare victory. Can we talk a little bit more about Madison Romney and whether we think that the um, concern uh, about Trump's presidency is deep enough in the Republican Party that it might actually have some tangible results as opposed to just rhetorical ones? Is there evidence that that is going somewhere? I mean, certainly after Mattis's resignation, it seemed like people on both sides of the aisle were willing to express real you know, close to fear about what this was going to mean for the government. And yet I don't see any actual steps being taken um, to protect the country differently. Nothing will happen. I cannot see anything happening. But David, you're wiser than I am. Uh, I don't think I'm wiser than you are, but I, I, there are a couple of political scientists whose work I've enjoyed through all this, Jonathan Bernstein and Matt Glassman, and they've argued that actually Congress has constrained Trump more than most people understand. And that basically, if you look at Trump's uh, lack of success at getting almost any legislation passed, save a tax cut, which is like the layup of all layups for Republicans, um, uh, and and you look at the ways in which his own agencies haven't always even tried to implement what he's doing on things like foreign policy, on trade, that, that this criticism of him actually has constrained him in certain ways. And I'm kind of sympathetic to that case. I mean, I think Trump hasn't been able to get as much done as many presidents in a whole bunch of realms. And part of the reason for that is some of this criticism from um, Congress. And I do think they haven't done nearly enough. They haven't constrained him nearly as much as I think they should. Um, but I do think that there, Trump faces risks this year, that we will see more and more of this. Um, and that when the Mueller report comes out, he will not have a particularly strong base of support. But David, you're looking at me. Well, like, I don't understand what the, this legislation, this, this, this uh, illusory legislation that Donald Trump's administration wanted to put forward. They don't have, they have no, I would have said what's constrained the 
Trump is their incompetence, is that they don't particularly have an agenda. They don't have anyone who's there to write a bill. They don't have any they don't have any ideology to carry forth except sort of a populist fomenting anti-immigrant feeling and some trade policies. And it seems to me he's been very effective with the trade policies that he's pursuing for the most part. He's he's put in a huge uh, you know number of, of tariffs and he's changed the, the our stance on negotiation and and so he seems to have been very effective with that and then there haven't been any and he's gotten his judges through but there haven't been any legislative efforts besides that oh health care so, which i think they didn't i don't think they cared and trump necessarily cared a huge amount about but it was this massive high profile failure but well right. it was a high profile and failure then the but tax have, cuts they, have they undermined the living day are they undermining living daylights out of obamacare yeah they are they are, but if you kind of imagine a spectrum of are we closer to having Obamacare or not, I would argue we're like 80% of the way, 90% of the way toward having Obamacare relative to what repeal would have looked like. What about all of the rollbacks on the rules and the agencies, right? Don't, for, yep. don't want to forget about the EPA, which like daily, I feel like every day there's some new headline about some um, anti-pollution, pollution preventing rule that is being changed. They're actually putting lead in children's lunches now. They, That's the new yeah. policy. <laughs> Instead of vegetables, catch up and lead. Very sweet. It's lunch. very sweet. They have clearly, obviously, a president is powerful. They've clearly done a lot of stuff. I guess setting aside the debate of how much Trump has or hasn't done, and kind of spinning this forward, I do think Trump has a much much less of a base of support from his own party than any president since Nixon. And I think whether it's the shutdown or the Mueller report or the potential for a recession, I think he has less room for error with Congress than we may realize right now. So, Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts. And today, Slate Plus bonus segment we are going to shill for David Leonhardt's brilliant new podcast, The Argument, but mostly we're going to use that to talk about the difficulty of having heterodox, cross-ideological uh, cross argument in a partisan age. Go to slate.com slash plus to learn about this rival podcast and to become a member of Slate Plus today. This episode of The GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family? Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame it was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Elizabeth Warren has won the race to be the first major Democrat to announce a 2020 campaign for president. She announced her exploratory committee this week with a short video. Actually, it wasn't that short. It was like kind of a long video. I, was, I, I thought it should have been about two minutes shorter. It kept going on and on and on. I was fast-forwarding through it. 
That was a bad sign. Seems she's a little windy. But her campaign is going to be premised on the idea that billionaires and corporations, that on the true idea that billionaires and corporations have rigged the economy against the vast majority of Americans and that she's going to fight to make it fair again. She is first into a race that has no front runners and many exciting and flawed candidates. I made a partial list so that we're going to spend the next 12 minutes on this partial list. Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, <laughs> Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, Beto O'Rourke, Amy Klobuchar, John Hickenlooper, Sherrod Brown, Michael Bloomberg, Jay Inslee. Now we're getting to people whose names I can't remember their first names. Eric Garcetti, Andrew Cuomo, Eric Holder, Christian Gillibrand, Julian Castro, I think. I think that's the Castro. I think that that's Castro. Right. Yep, it's that uh, Castro. Howard Schultz, Oprah Winfrey, Andrew Gillum. As I was taking notes, I just started adding people. What about Stacey Abrams is my note to myself. What about Terry McAuliffe? And I'm sure I've forgotten probably 16 other people. There's some actual congressman who's running who I had never heard of. Never heard of this guy yeah, from I Maryland. He's a Maryland congressman. Like, former congressman, I Oh, he's believe. a former congressman? Didn't he retire? John Delaney? Yes. Never heard of the guy. Literally never heard of him. Anyway, could be our next president. Who knows? So, Emily, Elizabeth Warren is a, in my opinion, a fantastic speaker, a fantastic explainer of complicated concepts in powerful ways. I really think she is great at that. She is old. She is a woman. She's white in a party that wants youthful energy, that may not want old white people leading the way, uh, in a country where at least the one prominent woman who has, has been a major presidential nominee, who's been a nominee of a major party, went down in part clearly because of some innate sexism in the American voting public. Um, what do you make of her announcement and what do you make of her her possibility to win the nomination at least? Man, it just feels like the moment to kind of be agnostic and watch them perform, see which of them prove to be the most talented politician and who can really capture the imagination of the Democratic Party right now. I mean, there are some ways in which Warren is well positioned. She has this strong economic populist message. She has real cred. She was the person as a law professor at Harvard who came up with the idea of the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau. And then she came to Washington and helped make it happen. But um, was too controversial at that point to actually get to go direct it. So she ran for Senate instead. And I think she has been in that role quite an effective politician. And yet there are all these other folks out there and she's not getting that much traction in the polls. Um, I mean, I find the Hillary Clinton comparison frustrating. They, To me, they seem like very different people, um, despite the fact that they are both women. Uh, and but, you know, then Warren also has this, in my view, stumble over releasing her DNA results in a way that really pissed off the Cherokee Nation. Um, I don't understand why she did that in a way that seems so ham handed. Um, and the idea that that is going to like dog her forever seems kind of tedious to me. Um, but something she's going to have to deal with. I, I just I don't know. I just want to watch them all for a while before I try to come to any sort of judgment. David Leonhardt, what do you think? Man, David Leonhardt has come to judgment already. No, I haven't. But (laughs) I I agree that I'm really glad she's running because um, first for the big reason that you just said, Emily, which is the way to figure out whether someone's good at running for president is to watch them running for president. It's why I'm more skeptical of a Biden candidacy than a lot of people, which is we've seen Joe Biden run for president twice and he was not good at it. Maybe he'll be better at it the third time. But um, so I'm really glad she's running. As David, as you said, she's really, really good at explaining complicated concepts in ways that make sense to people and are still true to reality. She's also a careful, thoughtful policymaker. If you dig into the details of her economic policies, 
they are so much more thoughtful than the details of Bernie Sanders' right. policies, even though they're often going in the same direction. And I don't always agree with Elizabeth Warren. I disagree with her on education reform, for example, which we definitely don't have to get into here. But 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 whether I agree with her, which I do most of the time, or disagree with her, I think that she's really thoughtful. I think the issues she faces are basically ones we've all covered. There are three. I think there's she, she's a woman and there's a lot of sexism. And that then interplays with the Native American stumble, which is it seems to me that when women have a problem in running for office, as everyone does, we focus on it and kind of don't talk about anything else. And then she does, as great as she is as, as explaining things, she does have a little bit of this lageria that afflicts members of the United States Senate, which is she often talks and talks and talks. And so I think we'll see how good she is as a candidate. Um, to me... Just from the starting gate, she is one of the stronger, plausible nominees the Democratic Party could have. And whether she wins or not, I'm glad there's going to be this really populist voice saying the central problem of our time is inequality. Right. The thing I love about her is, uh, contra Sanders, that she is not a burner. She does not want to tear things down. She's basically, let's let's structure rules so that systems work. Let's not try to you know, radically re- – she's a, she's a progressive. She's not a radical. She she wishes to improve a system that exists, not to destroy the system that exists and replace it with some something imagined. And she's also legitimately to the left of Barack Obama right. and Hillary Clinton. So, Emily, let's talk about I, – I, to, to, staying on Warren for a minute. To, to me, the two main people she's going to be competing with are Sanders and Harris. Sanders because – because they occupy ideologically a similar a similar part of the, the spectrum, not an entirely identical one, as I just mentioned, and because they're both old old white people from New England. Harris, I think, because she is also a tough, smart, uh, a tough, smart left-wing woman. Does Harris seem credible to you in the way that Warren seems credible? Credible, yes. I mean, Harris has been in the Senate for a shorter amount of time, but she has more of a track record in California. She was the attorney general, and then before that, the DA in San Francisco. She has this law enforcement background, which is going to cut two ways, not necessarily helpful in the Democratic primaries to be a former prosecutor, although it could help her in the general election. I mean, what one thing I've noticed about Harris, having written about her a couple of years ago, is she's trying to kind of casual up her image. Like she's, you know, posting pictures of herself on social media in her kitchen without makeup on. Like, I mean, they're all there's they're all doing that. Jill Brand is posting recipes. And it's it's not only because Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez is so amazingly good at this kind of social media presence. I think it's also this notion that you have to like unstiffen and unbutton and appear authentic in order to reach people. And that was not Harris's instinct earlier in her political career for understandable reasons. You know, you're the first African-American woman to be running statewide in California and one of the first for a while in the country. You might be guarded about your image, but I'm glad to see her kind of relaxing a bit. Um, Yeah, I definitely think for sure she's credible. I don't know which of these people or any of them are going to catch fire and quite how that's going to work with so many contenders. I don't know. I just can't like map out in my head how they're how we're going to work it out. It seems like sort of a name recognition contest right now. The debates will play a role. They start early, like in a few months. What's yeah, the, what were the smart. changes, David? Do I, did you are you on top of what the changes the party made? So they've they've stripped superdelegates of a lot of their power. They've, Aren't there more debates? They've changed the structure of the debates, right? 
Yeah. Earlier and more. And they've said, unlike, and I really like this. So the Republicans, remember last time, did this. They did the kids' table debate, where if you were low enough in the polls, you had to go at Mm. like 5 o'clock. The Democrats, I believe, instead are going to randomize if they have too many people to put on one stage, which just feels a lot fairer Mm -hmm. because the early polls, as Emily was saying, are basically all name recognition. Mm -hmm. I also think they're going to make the caucuses a little bit more small D democratic so you can do absentee ballots and stuff like that. But most of the time, these things don't matter. I mean, Hillary Clinton beat Bernie Sanders like 58%, 42%. None of these things mattered in that race. They could matter this time, but most of the time someone wins. So is this Joe Biden's race to lose just because he is ahead in the polls, presumably because of name recognition? I agree, no. I think he's a credible candidate, but... That'll just fade. Yeah. Once the thing gets started, he's going to have to be very good in the debates and not fuck up in the way that Joe Biden always fucks up. And he's old. Right, right. Okay. The huge field does help him, right? Like, there's a there's a plausible path in which he kind of kicks along at 20%, but with a 10 or 15-person field, as with Trump, that's really good for him. But, David, how do you think the Democrats should deal with the white guy problem, which is that there's going to be a temptation to nominate a, a, a respectable white guy, and, and Biden fits that role, or Beto presumably can fit the role of the Sherrod young, Brown. Ex- dynamic white guy. Sherrod Brown could fit the boring Midwestern white guy mold. But there's also the, the you know, the party is, is not white guys anymore, and it's their strongest candidates, their most interesting candidates are women, they're minorities, and they've shown over the years like that, that that's, that's who gets their own base fired up. Or do you think it's just going to – we're just going to learn through the process who's the strongest candidate and we shouldn't – the Democrats shouldn't worry about uh, putting somebody in a box because of who they are racially or their gender? My strong advice to Democrats, whether it's voters or people giving money or people trying to figure out who to sign up with, is don't do this on a meta basis. Don't try to figure out who someone else is going to like. Try to figure out who you like. And if you think about our last – two presidents, right? It's an, it's an orange-haired seven-year-old reality TV star who wasn't even that Republican when he started. And it's an African-American man with the middle name Hussein at a time when we'd never really even fathomed the notion of a black president anytime soon. And so I think people have, can, have campaigns that can take off for a reason. And whether it's Sherrod Brown, who I would argue also is competing if he runs in the Elizabeth Warren lane, whether it's Kamala Harris, whoever, whether it's Beto, whoever it is, I think we want to see these people run we want to see who's giving the best speeches. We want to see who does best in debates. And then whether they're a 65-year-old white woman or a 50-year-old black man, I think that'll kind of shake itself out. And also the vice presidential slot is a way of dealing with this in, uh, in every direction, right? Like I would be very surprised if the Democratic Party runs two white men, but it could run one white man and then a person of color, a woman, a, a woman of color. And there are advantages or disadvantages either way, right? A, a, a candidate of color could more easily run to the center without worrying about losing the Democratic right, base, right? right? Uh, a white candidate would have less of the, the problem of, of racist voters who might not want to vote for them. Right. Whatever happened to the Oprah Winfrey candidacy, which is the only one I've been excited about? Did, is that, is that really? a, a total non-starter? I, I literally am. That's, she's the only person. I think she'd be a great president. Why? I actually think she'd be a great president. She is unbelievably charismatic, a great explainer, a warm person. Uh, and in every aspect of her life, she has proven to be an incredibly effective leader of people and, and runner of organizations. And every, every time she's had to run something, lead something, do something, she has done it brilliantly. And I, I just don't, I see no argument against her other than it seems like a joke. And I don't, I, I didn't understand why it was so quick. There was this kind of bubble because she gave that speech but why it was so quickly dismissed. If we're going to take 
seriously. She, to me, she is a much more credible candidate than someone who's been a senator all their life. Like, big fucking deal. You've been a senator. But being a senator is being a professional talker. Oprah Winfrey is somebody who is a professional talker, and she's also been an incredibly successful business person. I mean, I guess setting aside the debate over whether she'd be an effective president, I can't decide how I feel about that. I assume that Oprah Winfrey has this amazingly good life, and she's also extremely smart and has looked at things and decided that her odds of winning or not, of getting the nomination are not that great. And so why put herself through the misery? But I'm, you know, Oprah does not contact me, so I, I don't know. Yeah, I haven't been consulted either, but it seems like not that fun to get banged up, right? Once you're actually in the race, then you have to deal with people attacking you. You have to raise all this money, get on the phone. I mean, what does Oprah Winfrey need that for? Yes, but because she wants to serve her country. I'm just saying, Oprah, if you're listening to the show. David is calling you. The Winfrey Bloomberg. Oh, my God. The Winfrey Bloomberg ticket. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> She'd be at the top, though. She would be at the top. Few. He'd, All right. He'd be in charge of you things get like points for that. you know, Ugh. sugar subsidies and, and the climate. Just climate. Not He'd be in criminal of climate. justice policy, please. He is terrible <laughs> on that. <laughs> she can be in charge of criminal justice policy. All right. Well, okay. we solved that problem. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. David Leonhardt's end-of-the-year column from the New York Times was about climate change and about the fact that this, the overwhelmingly biggest story of the year, was lost to us often. Was not We did not treat it as the most important story of the year, but it is the most important story of this year. It's the most important story of last year. It's the most important story of next year, most important story of the decade, of the century, of the millennium. And we seem unable to act on our certain knowledge that that is the case and we continue to fail to address it. So, David, why can we not see how big this is? You reminded us, of course, that it's big, but why do we fail to see how big it is year after year after year? I mean, it almost seems like it's designed to be a problem that we're not able to solve, right? It, it feeds into all of these human weaknesses. Like we um, we don't put enough weight on what's going to happen in the future, right? And we don't know how to deal with uncertainty. And we want to push bad news away from us. And it's got all those things. Um, and this was a really bad year for the climate. I mean, it's the, uh, I believe it was the fourth warmest on record. We don't have the very final numbers in. It almost certainly was. All of the five warmest on record have happened since 2010, which is more important than where this ranked exactly. We had heat waves that killed people. We had terrible wildfires, obviously. I was out west this summer in Oregon, a state that I believe, David, you have described as the most underrated state in the nation or something like that on this very show. And the air in Portland, Oregon was worse while I was there than it was in Mumbai or Beijing because of nearby forest fires. Um, And people are dying. People are having to move. All kinds of bad things are going on. My basic argument is for a long time, people have been afraid of using the weather 
to make the case for climate change. Because if you use the weather and tomorrow it snows, Donald Trump says, you know, ha ha, he tweets, ha ha, it's snowing. Look at those climate change people. And it's true that you can't attribute any individual storm to climate. But at this point, I don't see any alternative to using the weather because the other arguments that we've tried to make haven't persuaded people. And we're now getting to the point where the weather is changing in ways that are pretty hard to ignore. Staying on this for a second. You you said in your piece that, of course, the the news was was enormously bad for the most part, but you saw two reasons for hope. So what are those two reasons? So the first is connected to the weather, that if you look at public opinion, public opinion is becoming um, uh, somewhat more alarmed about the climate. I don't want to exaggerate this. It's not as alarmed as it should be. But the rec- the number of people saying the environment is is basically in bad shape is, is at its highest level in a decade. There's kind of a debate about whether there's any evidence that the number of Republicans worried about it are also rising. There was a good piece in the New York Times arguing that it is rising. There's other polling data that suggests maybe it's not. Uh, I'm agnostic on that. But clearly, the over overall number of people who are worried about it. I think that's going to continue because of the weather. We're going to have tragically more things like Superstorm Sandy, more things um, uh, like what happened in Puerto Rico, in North Carolina, and people are going to be unable to ignore it. The second thing is we focus so much attention on the U.S. federal government because the U.S. federal government is really powerful and really matters. But it's not the only thing that matters. And if you look at the other governments of the world, if you look at major states and cities, and if you look at even at some companies, there's a fair amount of activity still going on on climate change. And that's why why almost no one noticed it, but that's why this recent climate summit in Poland um, was actually moderately successful, even though the U.S. was playing a destructive role. So those are the reasons for optimism. They're not enough. Like, I'm deeply, deeply worried. As I said in the column, I'm worried that 40 years from now, I'm going to be sitting around with my grandkids, and they're going to be saying to me, like, why the hell were you writing about uh, all this minutia uh, instead of uh, the destruction of the planet when you were a journalist? I just read a a really good book by John Lanchester. Uh, he's who, great. He's so good. Yes. John, I, my, so he has a new book that ha- isn't out yet, but I got sent the galleys called The Wall. And it's a parable about both climate change and about immigration. But it, it's, it, it's, it, it's forward in a future on an island, which appears to be uh, Great Britain. And there's been a huge, some enormous climate change, seas risen, and, and the island has built an enormous wall around it to keep people out. And one of the things that they describe, the psychological shift that happened, is that the young people are unable to talk to the old people because the young people, all the things the old people did and failed to do are so maddening. And the old people simply don't understand how much they have betrayed and how much they have screwed over the young. And so that, that you will not be sitting with your grandchildren. Your grandchildren will be like, fuck you, Grandpa David. <laughs> and they'll be, you know, they'll be stealing from you and, and coming to your house and taking their, your nice stuff because they'll be so mad at yeah, you. Yeah, look, if I, I can understand that anger. It is potentially the generational divide, like for all divides, right? Because their lives but, could be profoundly different and they would legitimately point the finger at us. Yes. Right. But do, do you, that's one thing I was wondering about, Emily. I mean, we, we all three of us have young or children. And uh, when I look at, my children who who are smart and knowledgeable about the world they're not they don't spend their days sort of agonizing about climate change at least it, it may be the the way that nuclear war was for our generation where it was just in the back of your head all the time i went to bed certainly my nightmare as a child was nuclear war nuclear war nuclear war and it may be that that's their nightmare but they don't i think um, that's true they have existential dread about it the way we did about nuclear but, war but i'm not sure that Right, but are they spending their time trying to solve the problem, or is it is is it as paralyzing for the next generation as it is for us? 
I mean, they're they're kids. Yeah. Do we really want them to be? I feel like they're supposed to be able to grow up and do their kid things and they should be able to trust the adults are addressing this while they're still children. I I think there is a lot of awareness and that one of the hardest things is they don't know what to do and neither do any of us because the small individual things we do every day seem like peanuts compared to these larger policy issues. And while I think David Leonhardt's right for his grounds for optimism, you know, watching the Trump administration talk about coal as the future for energy in America just is breathtaking right now. And enraging. Yes. I mean, the, the thing that younger people are doing is we often say the United States isn't doing anything on climate. I just said it. But if if I'm being honest, it's not the United States. It's the Republican Party, right? Conservative parties in most countries are not climate deniers and they are doing things about this. And so if we say, well, what are young people doing? Well, they're not voting for the Republican Party. And so um, if that continues, I'm not sure whether it's going to be in time, but you do then imagine our policy moving in a direction that makes a lot more sense because young people look at the Republican Party and they say that party is A, racist, and B, in denial about the climate, and no thank you. Right, but... but it does have a blocking function. It has a veto function on major policy shifts in this country. Through the so, Supreme Court. Well, just in general, like because you need a supermajority in the Senate. And yep. until you – it's very hard to imagine 62 Democratic votes in the Senate under any plausible scenario. So until – so even if, even if Republican voters shift on climate and even if young people are not joining the Republican Party – the, until the party apparatus itself decides that it wants to accept this, um, there's not going to be action at a federal level in I this agree. country. I agree, and that's what, and I think the only the only thing I see that's shifting it is is natural disasters. What do you guys think of the new Green Deal that some congressional Democrats are talking about with a lot of enthusiasm? This idea of um, rebuilding the public infrastructure in a way that would promote renewable energy, address climate change, et cetera. I like it. Uh, and I think so if you, if you wanted to say I'm wrong about the weather being the best way to persuade people, the, the I think the argument to make is actually you want to inspire people rather than scare them. Yeah. And that if you scare people, they kind of just sort of shut themselves up. And, and so that's the argument. The argument is uh, we've got um, – I think we have three big problems in this country right now. The state of democracy. Let's put that to the side for one second. The climate and inequality. And uh, a Green New Deal addresses two of those problems. It says we're going to put right. huge numbers of Americans to work not through – through carbon taxes that drive everyone nuts, as we can see in France right now, but instead through like, we're going to have good jobs uh, doing green energy. And the details will really, really, really matter. And some of these plans will be bad and others will be good. But as a concept, the idea of putting people to work on clean energy with decent paying jobs is a fantastic idea. Agree. Totally agree. Especially because it could be the very people in, you know, rural America, the blue collar workers, the deindustrialized forgotten who are the are deserving of these kinds of opportunities and really in need of them. And that could even help with the state of the democracy. (laughs) And it could be working class voters without college education uh, of all races. Right. Yes. Yeah. I, I do. Your point about inspiration, I think, is a great one. When although he has squandered this in recent months, I one of the things I love about Elon Musk is. Is that is that kind of visionary, idealistic? Uh, you know, we're going to solve this quality that he has, and and it would be great if the government got behind that rather than rather than messed with it as they appear to be doing under Trump. But th- 
I don't think I can't imagine a Trump administration is going to sign off on a Green New Deal. That's going to take a new Democratic president. I it assume will. that's right. Look, I think if if Barack Obama got to do his presidency again, I think you, yeah. basically they should forget about the cap and trade bill, which I was strongly in favor of, and make the stimulus much, much yep. more about a Green New Deal. Yeah. Any last words on this, David? There are so many distractions in the era of Trump, right? There's every new outrage. There's the shutdown. There are tweets. I would just encourage people, make some space in your brain and some time in your lives to think about the climate, because in the long run, it's going to matter a lot more than what Donald Trump tweets today or tomorrow or next week. Let us go to cocktail chatter when uh, you're making your climate cocktail, when you when you have a, you can make new liquors out of the tropical fruits growing in your backyard in Maine, uh, you're going to need to to have new things to talk about in your despair besides climate. Although, as David said, we will talk about climate most of the time. So, Emily, what will you be chattering about when you're having your tropical fruit Maine cocktail? I have a happy chatter this week to welcome in the new year. California um, just passed a law that will disclose the records of police officers who found to who are found to have improperly used force or used their weapons. That's happy. Um, well, listen, they're disclosing the records. That's the happy part. Um, and also who've lied on their jobs or um, committed sexual assault on the job, which you also might want to know about. So this seems like it should be obvious, right? Police officers are in a position of tremendous trust. If they're going around lying or sexually assaulting or shooting people, we should know about it. And yet a lot of states, and California was among them, have these very strict confidentiality provisions that protect police records from almost any kind of disclosure. And this is something I learned about in reporting my book that really shocked me, because when you go to court, you have the right to evidence that could be um, could persuade a jury to exonerate you. And you would think that if the officer testifying that you did something has a record of lying on the stand, that that would be something that would be relevant. And yet in a lot of states, and this is still true of the state of New York, for example, it's basically impossible to get that information is locked down like Fort Knox. And that just doesn't seem like a good idea, right? I mean, we're not talking about like just willy-nilly disclosing their personnel records. We're talking about bad apple cops. Um, And we need to know that cops are telling the truth. Most police officers do tell the truth. It seems to me like this is a real um, advance for California. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out. There was already a lawsuit um, brought to try to stop the law that failed. So progress for 2019. A little more accountability for law enforcement, which we could use. Precisely. David Leonhart, what is your chatter? So my chatter is about sports, but I'm going to connect it to labor activism for any of your listeners who don't care about sports. Um, the uh, college bowl season is wrapping up right now, and it was for the most part, miserable this year. It was a bunch of games that weren't that exciting in stadiums that if you turned on the TV were mostly empty. That's so funny. All the ones I've turned on, I just hit, maybe I just hit on some good games. You found I've, some good games? I've, all the games I saw were good. Well, I, a few, didn't a couple they of do some day playoffs one, this year that were like different than the Bulls on New Year's Day in the past? Oh my God. No. Well, like it's that. it's not the first year of it. The playoffs, you know, <laughs> so the final is coming up. But the reason okay, it wasn't there the were first more year. bad games. It was a games, change. The reason there were more bad games than usual uh, is, or a reason, is that a whole bunch of players basically said to the NCAA, screw you. And so for the meaningless games, the games that were not part of the playoff that Emily is following so closely, um, these players who are about to go pro said, we're not playing. 
So Will Greer from West Virginia did it. Um, Devin Bush from Michigan did it. Bryce Love from Stanford did it. And if you think about it, it makes all kinds of sense, which is these guys are on the cusp of finally getting paid for playing football as opposed to just the advertisers and the TV networks and the college administrators getting paid for what they do. And they realize, wait a second, I have this one last game. It's meaningless because it's a bowl that's not part of the playoff. No, I'm not going to play. I'm going to sit out. And I might get hurt and ruin my chances forever. Yeah, yeah. I might get hurt and ruin my chances forever. And so I'm really glad to see it because I think college athletes um, are basically exploited for what they do. And I don't know exactly the right solution. But the idea of them saying, hey, I'm not going to play in a meaningless game on a Wednesday night to me is both good for college football. And it's like just a little bit of a sign that we see some more labor activism, whether it's journalists organizing or or whatever. But I, I was totally in favor of it, too. But what I don't understand is your point that it's meaningless. All the games are meaningless. Why should they play in any of the games by that standard? Well, so it's even within. I mean, it's all meaning. I mean, it's a bowl game. You get you you get honor. You get a trophy at the end of it. It's more meaningful than the game you play against McNeese State in week two. So, if you take college football on its own terms and say what matters is the national championship and maybe by extension the conference championships, I would argue that. 10 or 15 years later, people remember who won the national championship, but no one remembers who won the the Poulon Weed Eater Bowl or whatever these bowls are now called. And so even within the kind of construct of college football, I would argue that the bowl games uh, are less meaningful than a regular season game. If you lose to McNeese State, you're out of the running for the national championship. Well, but most of those teams, West Virginia was never in the running for the national championship. Most of the teams that you, those players were on, were not in the running for the national championship. They, they were in the running to win their conference they were in the running to you know get a, a new year's day bowl and maybe they didn't make a new year's day bowl but they weren't most of the players who were sitting out were not people who thought at the beginning of the season i'm going to be on the national championship oh at the beginning of the season i think a lot of them did i mean a couple guys set out for michigan they were in the running to make the maybe playoffs michigan, until yes. the end but i mean these were teams that had these are legitimate teams that had dreams and they basically said this game doesn't clear the bar of what I care about to risk but, my body. Well, I again, I sympathize. I actually think it has to do with the scheduling, which is that the difference is that the bowl game came a month after the rest of their season. And so, yes. and so why am I wasting a month, which I could be training and getting ready for, for the NFL combine doing this? When, whereas I, if, the game, if the bowl game had come the week after their last game of the season, I, they probably would have played it. I don't. I think it's that there's this huge gap which they're losing as as a training period. I think it's both. I think it's the gap that you're talking about. I also think it's they don't feel like they're letting down their teammates that much. Whereas if they skip the conference championship game or a, a middle season game, they would feel like this was something that was really important to the team. I think a lot of people on the team understand that the Bulls basically just exist to fill TV time. My chatter. So I have two uh, two quick chatters. Um, one also about. Uh, football as well, which is, uh, if you are a Washington Post reader, I commend to you a Sally Jenkins column about the monstrosity, the colossus of monstrousness that is Daniel Snyder, the owner of the Washington football team. Sally Jenkins just just takes him apart. He's been the owner of this team for more than 20 years now, and he has ruined it. He's taken what was a once very proud, well-run, winning team, which had an honorable tradition a team that was that played with integrity was run with integrity and he's ruined it in every possible way he's betrayed a very loyal fan base the team has lost 30 percent of its fans in the stadium over the past three years 
include and not only that if you go to any any team any of their games you'll notice that most of the fans are rooting for the opposing team anyway because people are just buying scalp tickets to go root for their the team that's coming to visit but yet he continues to rake in millions of dollars from his team the team is more and more valuable every year because nfl franchises are worth so much and now of course he wants to get the city to fund his new some new stadium for him and give him a bunch of land to build his new stadium and sally jenkins just saying do not give this man one penny do not give him one square inch of land to build his stadium. Do not publicly finance the stadium. And I pray that the the, the city mothers and fathers of Washington, D.C. Uh, listen to her wise advice. I co-command the column. Um, and then Is also there anyone I just who just loves Dan Snyder as a human being and wants to write like pro Dan Snyder column? I don't know. I wonder if there's anyone who loves him. <laughs> He's married. Maybe his wife loves him. I mean, he both seems to be a bad human being and incompetent. And so that's a combination that doesn't inspire a lot of support. I guess if you have a lot of money, you get some love from somewhere. That's just how it goes. Right. Uh, He he just seems – I think there's a a genuinely interesting uh, debate you could have about whether Dan Snyder would be a worse president than Donald Trump. But we don't need to have that here. That'll just be my chatter. That's enough chatter. That's a lot of chatter. We also, of course, have listener chatter. So listeners, you've been tweeting great chatters to us at at Slate Gabfest. I want to encourage you to keep doing it in the new year. Um, we love getting your, your listener chatters. And this one comes via Kurt Fonger on Facebook. So that was at facebook.com slash Gabfest. It is a, about a HuffPost story. I was a cable guy by Lauren Huff. Lauren Huff is a woman who worked as a cable a cable uh, installer and cable um, fixer, and in in fact ended up with taking care of the Cheneys, the vice former vice president Cheney and and his cable, um, and it's a fantastically interesting, uh, depressing story about what it is to go into people's homes and the way, see how people live and see how people treat people coming to help fix their problems. How awfully, how how poorly, and for the most part, people behave towards the people who are coming to help them. Um, so I it's really quite suggest deadpan too. It. Like it's depressing but funny all, all along the yes. way. All the cat piss stuff that really got to me. I have cats. Oh, I was man. thinking, shit, <laughs> does my house smell like cat piss? I hope not. It doesn't to me. It doesn't. Maybe it does. That is our show for today. The Gap Fest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. June Thomas is the managing producer of Slate Podcast. Gabriel Roth is the editorial director of Slate Audio. You should follow us on Twitter at, at @SlateGapFest and tweet chatter to us there for Emily Bazelon and our stalwart and wonderful, not frequent enough guest, David Leonhardt of the New York Times. I'm David Plotz. Thank you for listening. Go listen to David's podcast, The Argument 2, while you're at it. And we'll talk to you next week. I expect John will be back. But if he isn't, maybe David will be back. Who knows? My pleasure. Hey there, Political Gabfest listeners. It's Luke Burbank. Uh, you might have heard me on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me or maybe Livewire Radio, a couple of shows I work on. But really where I spend most of my time is on a daily podcast called Too Beautiful to Live or TBTL. And I do it five days a week with this guy. Hey, my name's Andrew Walsh. And uh, you don't you don't know me from Adam, honestly, but I am a huge fan of the Political Gab Fest, and I'm so psyched that we get to have a promo running on the show, Luke. Yeah, you, like, never missed this show, but my question is, are there any similarities between TBTL and the Political Gab Fest? <laughs> I've been thinking about it. Here's the best I can do. So you know how the Gab Fest is 99% about politics, but every now and yeah. then they go on these little tangents? The other day, David Plotz was talking about how he's trying to drink more martinis, but for some <laughs> reason, the last martini he had 
was accompanied by a jello shot. I think TBTL is more like 99% jello shot with the accidental 1% of content. Yeah. Mostly, though, it's just you and me talking about the news and our lives and our insecurity, and then just like a surprisingly robust amount of content involving this laser helmet I bought on Amazon for $900 that's supposed to cure my baldness. How's that working, by the way? Not great, if I'm going to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, if that sounds like the kind of thing you want to listen to five days a week, you can find us over at at tbtl.net. That's too beautiful to live. And on Apple Podcasts and wherever you get these things.